After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way. Legendary writer and comedian Barry Cryer has been making Britain laugh for over 60 years, beginning his career as a comic at the infamous Windmill Theatre before penning scripts for Danny LaRue and Ronnie Corbett at the celebrated nightclub Winston's. Whilst here, Barry met an important figure in the development of his career, David Frost, who recruited him for the Frost Report alongside Corbett and Barker. Throughout the 70s, Barry wrote for the anarchic Kenny Everett on his various series for the BBC and ITV, and then in 1972 became a regular on the Radio 4 panel show I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue. I met up with this legend to talk comedy, icons and his thoughts on an unparalleled career in entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr Barry Cryer. Like so many of your peers, you began your career as a comic at the famous Windmill Theatre. What was it like to have this sort of grounding? Well, it was amazing because uh, the background was Blue Eyes got to university and blew it. And BA England failed to leave university. And then I was in a student show at the old Empire Theatre and a guy saw me. He didn't come to see me, but saw me off and we worked. So suddenly so pitchforked into show business. And then what you do when you're young... I go overnight to London, and I've got a bed set in North Finchley, and a 17-day rail return ticket. And I got friends who got me auditions and all sorts, but I thought, it's over. Go home, between tail between your legs. And uh, the day before the ticket ran out, I got an audition at the windmill. Half past ten in the morning, wheel them on, wheel them off, conveyor belt. And I auditioned at 10.30, and this voice in the stalls said, uh, no any more jokes? So I told some old jokes. Do you know another song? I, th- I said, I haven't got the- any music. He said, uh, Ronnie will busk for you. This is Ronnie Bridges, a pianist who became a friend. And then in the, thank you, I thought, well, that's it. And then another man who became a friend called John Law comes on the stage. He said, dressing room 12A. I said, sorry, what are you talking about? He said, you've got the job. I was on the stage at 12.30 after auditioning at 10.30. You know, you're an automatic pilot. You're out of it. You don't know what's going on. And the old man, six shows a day, six days a week, 36 shows. I can't believe it myself looking back. And the old man had me in his office between every show that day, between the fish tank and the desk. Do your act. Come on. It was only about 12 minutes, you know. And he changed it. You tell that joke too soon. That's a good joke. Leave that till the end. He was a brilliant man. And I rang my mother in Leeds and said, I'm a windmill comedian. She said, no idea what I was talking about. But what a school that was, because they'd come to see. They weren't strippers, my mates. They were nudes, posing completely still on the stage. It's another world, isn't it? And the customers came to see them. So you learned to die with dignity if you were a comedian. You, you know, if you got a big laugh, any laugh in the afternoon, you were thrilled. And it brightened up later when they come out the pub, you know. But I'd, 
I'm so grateful I was there. What a school that was. 36 shows a week. Yeah, it's my introduction to London, and Soho was my village. And Soho's bland now. It's quite boring. Smart restaurants and stuff. It was sleazy in those days. <laughs> it was more fun. Writing for Danny LaRue and Ronnie Corbett at the legendary Winston's nightclub, I imagine, was an invaluable experience for you as a writer. Give us an insight into the process that went into making these shows. I met <clears throat> Ronnie Corbett, and I met my darling, who's upstairs at the moment. I met her and him on the very same day. Tossed a coin, <laughs> married her. <laughs> a nightclub rehearsal. Uh, she'd been in pantomime with Danny LaRue, was a big star in those days and it wasn't his own nightclub but he was the star of the show and he said to Terry <coughs> my darling he said uh, what are you doing after pantomime she said not much he said do you want to be in my nightclub show and that was it that's how we met and uh, I'd seen Dan I think in a pantomime yes I'd seen him in a pantomime and we got to know each other uh, but it was a whole new world for me, and I had to adapt because he was a brilliant drag act. And, uh, oh, you couldn't do it. No filth. You know what I mean? No, oh, no, he was very prudish, Dan. But you did do blonde taunters and suggestive stuff. And uh, that was another good school. You know, every few weeks we'd change the show, and I had to write a new one. And then, then Danny would go off and do pantomime, and Ronnie Corbett and I would write a fill-in show while he was away at Christmas. And he'd always say, uh, oh, I might not be back, I'm going to have my own club. And he usually came back. And then one year he said, I've done it. And he got this club in Hanover Square in London, Danny LaRue's. And uh, we all moved. The dress rehearsal for the new club was the day after the night we'd finished. Saturday night we finished at Winston's. Sunday we were rehearsing a new show at Danny LaRue's Club. It, it's just amazing looking back. And Danny LaRue's Club very quickly became the place. I was, I was writing the shows I was in with Ronnie and the gang. And I thought, if you don't know, you're lucky. You don't deserve this. The people who came to the club, the Beatles separately, not all together, but Burton and Taylor and Judy Garland and Noel Coward and Margot Fontaine and Nureyev. You couldn't believe what was happening. And uh, I'll tell you a story about, we did a show where Ronnie Corbett played Rudolf Nureyev and Danny LaRue played Margot Fontaine, which was going well. And then somebody said, Margot Fontaine's in tonight. Oh, boy. She was in uh, London with Nureyev and an Australian ballet company doing a ballet called Raimonda. I thought, oh, God, she's in. She laughed and laughed all the way through. Then she had a drink with Danny and she said, I'd like to book the club for a private night and bring Rudy Nureyev and Roberto Arias, her husband, uh, who'd been involved in terrible things in South America, was in a wheelchair in the club. And Dan said, we don't do private nights, love. And then he thought, Tuesdays, aren't they? <laughs> so it was all booked. Nureyev and Fontaine, this ballet company, Ronnie Corbett as Nureyev, and uh, Danny as Margot Fontaine. And there was a young actor we got on the show called Doug Fisher. He'd been at Oxford and he spoke fluent Russian. He had a degree. 
And I said, you introduce it that night. So Doug goes on. Nuriyev's English wasn't very good then. Doug goes on and starts speaking, pure filth apparently, in Russian. Nuriyev rolling about laughing. And then uh, the audience are laughing at Nuriyev laughing. And it was just quite weird. And then Ronnie Corbett came on as uh, Nuriyev. And Nuriyev started singing. The man, the audience are looking at Nuriyev as well as looking at Ronnie Corbett. And uh, it... Ronnie sang anything or said anything. The man next to Nuriyev would go, translating. Nuriyev would then laugh. So I was getting about three laughs for every joke. It was an amazing night. But that lovely woman, she thought it was funny. And Nuriyev enjoyed it. So, you know, I needn't have worried. But at the time, I thought, oh, boy, this is... And Lionel Bart, who were talking about him yesterday, I was with some people, who wrote the great musicals, you know, Oliver and all that. And he wrote a musical called Blitz about London. <clears throat> and there was a song, Who's This Geezer Hitler, in the musical. We are now doing Anthony and Cleopatra at the club. And I used to rip off people. I'd nip, steal their tunes and write a new lyric. So I wrote a song, Who's This Geezer Caesar? And then one night they said, Nanel Bart said, oh, I'd ripped off his tune. He came up to me afterwards. He said, who's this geezer Caesar? Better than mine. <laughs> so people were lovely about it. They all, they all went to Danny LaRue's after they'd done their show and whatever. You know, it was an amazing... The people I met that era, it was amazing. Didn't Lionel Bart write Twang? Oh, yes. Twang was his flop. Uh, and Ronnie Corbett was in it. And I went to uh, a, special, a performance for us in our business on the Sunday night. And we didn't know what to expect. And it certainly wasn't good. People didn't know the lines and Ronnie Corbett and everything. And uh, and it was a flop and it didn't run and closed. But it was good luck for Ronnie Corbett because David Frost had asked him to be in a TV series and he said, I can't, I'm in this musical. So when the musical folded, Ronnie Corbett was available and went into a show called The Frost Report. And David Frost had... Uh, had a drink with me and Ronnie one night in the club and I became a frost writer. Been dogged by good luck all my life. <laughs> Suddenly, you know, if you were writing for David Frost, everybody wanted to know, you know. So that was when you met David Frost. You've called him the practising catalyst. Practising catalyst, yes. What were your first impressions of him? Very affable, marvellous with people. He lit a room up when he came in. He generally liked people. And he could relax his guests when he interviewed them. And John Major said being interviewed by David Frost was like sitting in a warm bath, but wait for the cold shower. Suddenly, in that very friendly voice, he'd ask a deadly question, but they, before they realised it, they'd answered it. I mean, what TV host helped to bring down an American president? Richard Nixon he interviewed. And he was giving up by the end of the weekend. He was determined to nail Nixon. And he got him on the Sunday night. He said, do you think you ought to apologise to the American people? And Nixon did. And that was it. And Frosty had mortgaged his house and God knows what to make this programme. It sold all over the world. Amazing. Bringing down a president. We had a joke about Frosty, by the way. We, he had an open-top convertible car. And we said, if it started raining, David pressed a button on the dashboard. 
and it stopped raining. As you said, your association with David Frost eventually led to you being recruited to be part of the writing team for the Frost Report. With writers contributing material from a whole range of different backgrounds, including people like Dennis Norden and yourself from the Variety background, together with Palin and Jones from University Review, how did you introduce Cohesion into the show? Well, that was Frost again. Practicing Catalyst got us all together, this Monty Python before they were Monty Python and the goodies and Great American, though I subsequently worked with Dick Vosborough, uh, Keith Waterhouse, marvellous. It was a complete mix of all of us. And Frosty got us all together. And we rehearsed in a church hall. And at lunchtime, we played football with a tennis ball. And he was in goal, David Frost. He was brilliant with people. We were a gang. We were all, you know, we were all having to laugh. And, and you were given a theme for each show, and you went away and wrote some jokes or sketches. And Tony Jay, who's just left as Lord, Tony Jay and Johnny Lynn, who wrote Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, Tony Jay was one of the script editors, and he would read out a little essay about what the theme for this next show was, The Continuing and Developing Monologue, CDM. So we, it soon became Cadbury's Dairy Milk, you know, CDM. And we just laughed and went away. Now we've decided what we're going to do. And we wrote sketches about whatever subject uh, we wanted. Marty Feldman was one of the editors, and he suggested holidays for one show and then disappeared on holiday. <laughs> but what was your favourite sketch? Oh, God, I can't remember. Uh, I think it must have been, there was an election at the time. Harold Macmillan, I think we did a whole show Willie Rushton played... Uh, oh, no, that was the week that was programmed at Harold Macmillan, not the Frost Report. But we did one Frost Report, which comedy shows weren't doing in those days, which was all politics. Prime Minister of the Day and, and whatever. It was uh, it was a really sea change in comedy in those days, what was happening. You know, that was the week that was, which I mentioned. Uh, it was a real breakthrough. No more deference for politicians... As I said, Willie Rushton was playing Harold Macmillan and the great Peter Cook and all that. It was just superb. And we were on the back of that. We were more conventional with our funny sketches and songs, but they opened the door. That was the week that was opened the door for a new sort of show, you know. After a brief spell on LWT, Corbett and Barker found their home at the BBC from 1971, following an impromptu performance at the BAFTAs. That's right. Tell us a little bit about that night. Uh, well, I wasn't there, but I've seen the television. Uh, they, they'd they been working... Well, we all went to ITV with David Frost, the two Ronnies before they were known as the two Ronnies, and John Cleese. We all went to ITV with David. And uh, apparently we weren't aware in the background the contracts coming to an end. The timing couldn't have been better. And the two Ronnies were asked to do a turn that night at that event. And... Uh, Bill Cotton and Paul Fox, BBC eminences, were there and saw the two Ronnies, Corbett and Barker, up there. They said, they could do their own series, and that's how it happened. They were signed up immediately by the BBC on the strength of that night. Amazing, amazing thing to happen, that. And, of course, we all know two Ronnies ran for years. I believe it was your idea to have the bookends to each two Ronnies show as the news at 10 desk. Where did that originate? Am I given credit for that? 
I don't remember. I don't know who it was, sort of. But I remember we had a chat with the two runners, and they said, we can't just walk on or come down a staircase. One of us, it may have been me, my memory, uh, said, no, newsreaders sit at desks. Why don't you sit at a desk and do jokes? And then said, yeah, that's the opening of the show. What's the closing? And one of us, maybe me, said the same. Like you said, bookends. The show opened and closed with the two Ronnies sitting at a desk as if they were like newsreaders. Beyond the two Ronnies, you also worked with another comedy legend, Kenny Everett. How different was he to work with compared to someone like Corbett and Barker? Well, Kenny was the only non-comedian I ever wrote for. He wasn't a comedian, he was Kenny Everett. And you can't say somebody's a sort of Kenny Everett, there was only one. He was just wonderful. And I wrote the shows initially with Mike McIntyre's father, Ray Cameron, who was a good comic himself and a good writer. And we were put, because we'd met doing a show called Joker's Wild, Ray and I. And uh, we finished up at Thames Television writing Kenny Everett shows. And he was just a one-off. You'd give him an idea and he'd run with it. And I was watching an interview once with a young actress. And uh, she was in a film that had a nude axe murder scene. And this young actress said, quite seriously, it was all done in the best possible taste, which I'm sorry made me laugh. And I told Everett, who laughed a lot, and we decided to have a character who would say, all done in the best possible taste. And it went from there, Everett with a beard in full drag, and he remembered seeing a, a comic when he was a child called Old Mother Riley, who used to cross her legs violently when she spoke. Isn't it interesting? These little elements... So Everett took over this character, and it's all done in the best possible taste, and crossed his legs. And it became amazing. And she was known, she just had the name Cupid. And then he went on the Michael Parkinson show much later, and he was going to come on as Cupid at the beginning of the show. And Michael Parkinson said to me, I've got to introduce her properly. Has she got a full name? I said, Cupid Stunt. And he said, thank you very much. I'll have to rehearse that. <laughs> <laughs> Everett with the beard and everything in track. I mean, it was hilarious. He and Billy Connolly as two older women having tea, two bearded men in drag, two nice old ladies having tea. We had a great time on that show. So you were there when he did the Parkinson show? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's why. He was said to me before the show, I've got to introduce him. I said, Cupid stunt. He went, oh, <laughs> And we did, Billy Connolly and he became great friends, you know, to the chemistry between those two. And somebody told me there was an underground gents in Leicester Square in those days, and it had an attendant. And there was a man who'd worked there for about 40 years, and he was retiring. So I think a radio interviewer went in to ask him, he said, you must have seen a lot of changes. He said, oh, God, he said, men coming in together and going into a cubicle needles and white powder on the floor and oh dear it's so different anybody comes in here for a straight shit is like a breath of fresh air he said and I never forgot that and I told Everett and Billy Connolly and we laughed a lot and I said let's do it so even Everett said we'd never get away with shit on television so I said take the H out anybody comes in here for a straight sit and we did the sketch on television with Billy Connolly interviewing Everett or vice versa, I can't remember. 
But what we didn't tell Billy was strange things were happening behind him. A man came on on a unicycle and one man went into a cubicle and came out in drag and a juggler came on. And Billy suddenly spotted it on the screen, the monitor in front of him, what was happening behind him, and started laughing. And when Connolly started laughing, I mean, the sketch, we had to cut it down. It was five minutes, the sketch. It ran about 13 with Bill laughing and chaos. It was, it was a great time. And then the BBC signed Everett up, and it was different. They tried to turn him into a BBC comedian. You know, it was different. We rehearsed all... We, we recorded all day long at Thames with no audience. The only show I worked on where nobody said quiet. How do you think the BBC and Television Centre influenced the comedy output during the 70s? Oh, enormously, enormously. And I, I was around uh, at the time. Working as a freelance, I wasn't, you know, people seemed to think I was a BBC man. I was just an old freelance wandering about. It was terrific at the time. But now, oh, here he goes. I'm turning into Victor Meldrew. Uh, you've got suits and number crunches. All, this, uh, all they care about is demographics and what audience are we aiming at. Bill Cotton and Sir Lou Grade at ITV in the old days were showmen. They'd done shows themselves that even been performers. And they knew they were marvellous with performers. I miss those people. You, you don't get bosses like that now. Everybody's an accountant. In 1972, you became a regular on the quit-witted radio panel show, I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue, hosted, of course, by the late, great Humphrey Littleton. Why do you think it's been so enduring? Well, we, we can't believe it. We do a stage version of it. And a few weeks ago, as we're talking now, we played at Colston Hall, Bristol, and 3,000 turned up. We couldn't believe what was happening. We're like an old rock band. It's the O2 any minute, you know. And we thought if the audience were our age, they'd be dropping off. But we get families and students, and we grew up with you. We're very happy about it. 45 years ago, 1972, and it wasn't regarded as a proposition then. David Hatch's first producer said, oh, put it out on Boxing Day when everybody's pissed. It's not going to work, this. And the bosses at the BBC in those days said, Humphrey Littleton on a comedy. He did radio talking about jazz. Humphrey Littleton. As it turned out, it was a brilliant idea and uh, they fought for the show and kept it and it started working. Do you think the nature of joke telling's changed? Have you had to rephrase or re-edit any jokes to work better for subsequent generations? Well, the only... Th the best jokes are about life. Life and sex and the lavatory <laughs> and things, but you put a more topical name in if you've got a joke with a name in. But I do, I like talking about the past. I don't, I don't want to live there. And I work with young ones a lot. I was with some last night, young stuff. They don't tell jokes. They talk about life and they're, they're brilliant, but it's different. And they say to me, you tell jokes? As if I've invented some amazing new form of comedy. The old man tells jokes and then he sings a song. What's that? So I've got my niche now, you know, the old guy. And my mate Ronnie Golden and I do the Edinburgh Fringe every year and rock and roll and gospel and blues and jokes. And there's nobody quite like us. We've got our own corner. You know, it's marvellous. It's always a funny question to ask, but how do you think you'll be remembered? Oh, I don't care. 
I don't care. People remember what I think is irrelevant. I think I don't mean to root your question, but I'm not bothered. I just think people make their own minds up. No, I don't have it. But looking back at your career, what would you say your proudest achievement is? Meeting my wife. But one moment, I saw her standing with a pianist at the rehearsal. I went, oh, best thing that ever happened to me. 55 years this year. And people say, what's that all about? I say, we've never understood each other. We argued oh, blah, blah, all day long. She's the least boring person I've ever known. It's wonderful. You see an old couple in a restaurant or a pub and they get their stuff, sit down like that. And they're not saying anything. And I always think, I hope you're content. Or are you bored stiff with each other? You know what I mean? Me and Terry. Blah, 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 blah. I said to her one day, we disagree about everything, don't we? And she said, no, we don't. <laughs> Thanks very much. Um, well, thank you for the trip, you two. A big thank you to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates of forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.